0: Cromwell's role in the subjection of Ireland is misunderstood. I think it's exaggerated and I think there are others. I think of the commander Charles Coote, for example, who were far, far more ruthless in their dealings with the Irish, particularly the Catholic Irish, than anything Cromwell was involved in. And I think you also have to see the conquest of Ireland within the context of the European religious wars of that century, most notably the Thirty Years' War, in which the atrocities were far, far greater. That's not to let Cromwell off at all for some of the activities at Drogheda and certainly at Wexford. (music)
1: Hello and welcome to this week's pod, in which I continue to look at a period that is endlessly fascinating. That being the 17th century, and specifically the period between the execution of Charles I and the restoration of Charles II, known as the Protectorate. This is when we had a new ruler, Oliver Cromwell, a controversial figure, although we go into why that might not be the right word for him, as you heard at the top there. Paul Lay joins me as we talk about his book, which is our non-fiction book of the month, Providence Lost, The Rise and Fall of Cromwell's Protectorate. On this podcast, if you haven't already, you can delve into other episodes of the period. We've got the Civil War and the trial and execution of Charles I with Mark Turnbull, Cromwell and his family with Miranda Mallins, and Charles II with Charles Spencer. So there's plenty to get your tea stuck into. Plenty more great history coming up, so please do subscribe, rate and review if you can, and do tell your friends. It really helps the pod to grow. In the meantime, I'll hand you over to me, talking with Paul Lay on Cromwell's Protectorate. Paul Leigh welcome to the podcast it's great to have you on. Hello glad to be here and I've got you on because Providence Lost your book Providence Lost is our uh, non-fiction book of the month. I say book of the month it's actually book of the issue which is basically two months so you get two months for the price (laughs) of one and I, I was keen to have this because your book, it covered well, the subtitle is The Rise and Fall of Cromwell's Protectorate. And you know, this has really been a in vogue subject of the last few years, really, this period of the 17th century, seven civil war, and then the interregnum. I had Charles Spencer on talking about Charles II, and then and then we've covered the trial and execution of Charles the First. So whilst it might not be in order, our listeners I would hope, uh, completely up to speed on where we are, 1649. Charles I has, has been executed and Cromwell's played rather sort of Machiavellian role, we concluded during the trial and execution, but it's by no means certain that Cromwell takes power in the aftermath of the execution. Would that be fair to say, Paul?
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And it's a very unusual career. The trajectory that's put Cromwell in this position where he's on the precipice of power is, is an unusual one. I mean, he's fated during the civil wars as a great cavalry general, leading player in the new model army. But this is a man who had no military experience at all before diving in headfirst in his early 40s. So it's quite extraordinary, he had no military training, he was not one of those men of the new model who'd fought on the continent or anything like that. He just seemed to have a very decisive attitude towards combat that I think was partly informed by his deep belief in God and the idea of providence, that he was on the right side and that God would always back the right side that um you know that's what parliament was that their cause was just and that god would be backing them so he was almost reckless in parts on the battlefield uh but he earned a reputation uh as a brilliant cavalryman. he was certainly a very fine horseman there was no doubt about that he had an obsessive interest in horses but he was By the time that the Second Civil War was won and the king was put on trial, he was a leading political figure and he played a key role in putting Charles on trial and in the execution. He was one of the signatories. He was one of the regicides of the document that allowed Charles to be executed in January of 1649. And so he was prominent by that point. But there was no sense, I don't think, uh, certainly there was no inevitability that he would become the head of state then, because, of course, one of the first things he did uh, when the Commonwealth was proclaimed, and this was in um, early 1649, and then later, he goes to Ireland, and he, uh, well, a strange one, really, because he's notorious uh, not least in Ireland, for his actions over there. And in fact, it may be the case that, ironically, he's the single most famous person in Irish history. But he was only there for nine months, and it was others who had to settle Ireland, um, including later his son, Henry. But he came back to a place in some kind of chaos, and England in some kind of chaos, Because this very bold decision had been made to execute the king, but no one really had a plan as to what to do next. And Cromwell is very prominent among those who are seeking what Cromwell himself describes as the healing and settling of the nation. What should be the settlement that heals this nation that's been through terrible? Uh, civil war uh, and I think we should probably say nations because by this point uh, not only Ireland Scotland has been conquered um, though the English parliamentarians are much more sympathetic to Scotland being a largely uh, Protestant Presbyterian polity uh, as opposed to Catholic Ireland but it's united uh, as um, these islands of Britain and Ireland are united for the first time, albeit at the point of a sword, um, and then there is the great challenge of how are these nations governed, and that's the challenge that Cromwell and his contemporaries face. Well, he
1: was in Ireland, as you say, for nine months, and you've mentioned Ireland, so we should probably deal with that. In that, if there's a one figure who defines the relationship between um, well certainly England and Ireland and well I suppose to a certain extent Scotland Scottish armies didn't behave brilliantly in Ireland either did they so mm. so but if there is one figure who who one could argue defines the relationship between Britain and Ireland it is Cromwell and there's no doubt about it that you mentioned nine months he's there for nine months that that nine months was rather a long nine months wasn't it well it was. I mean,
0: the Royalist plan.
1: The I mean, I mean, it's
0: echoed through
1: history since, since then. Oh, oh,
0: absolutely. The legacy is enormous, almost to the point where it's actually quite difficult to have a rational discussion about Cromwell's activities in Ireland during those nine months uh, in, in, in 1649. It, I would argue that it's a far more complex uh, engagement um, than has been highly mythologized, particularly by some Irish historians, they're not exclusively Irish historians. Cromwell is the bogeyman for 800 years of English and Scottish, indeed, as you rightly point out, predation of Ireland. Uh, He was there for nine months, but we're talking about 800 years of a very problematic and troubled relationship, asymmetric. um, And you still have that legacy today. But I personally think, and this would require an entire podcast or indeed a series of podcasts to make this, to make the case that Cromwell's role in the subjection of Ireland is misunderstood. I think it's exaggerated. Um, And I think there are others. I think of the commander, Charles Coote, for example, who were far, far more ruthless in their dealings with the Irish, particularly the Catholic Irish, uh, than anything Cromwell was involved in. And I think you also have to see the conquest of Ireland within the context of the European religious wars of that century, most notably the 30 years war in which the atrocities were far, far greater. That's not to let Cromwell off at all for some of the activities at Drogheda and certainly at Wexford, but it's very difficult to really say that the behavior of Cromwell and some of his troops was exceptional by the standards of the time and particularly in comparison with what was going on in Europe during the Thirty Years' War, which had ended uh, just a year before uh, Cromwell went to Ireland with a battle-hardened army and there was real debate about the role of the army in Ireland as well. Just before the new model army went to Ireland there was a mutiny at Burford that is uh, celebrated during which three soldiers were shot for their role in the mutiny. One of the reasons that that mutiny took place was because the soldiers did not want, and this is a highly radicalised group of soldiers in the New Model Army then, both politically and religiously, they did not want to treat the Irish in the way that they had been treated. And there was a strong movement within the New Model Army against the idea of conquering Ireland, although that was problematic in itself because Ireland was seen as a royalist kind of landing landing ship uh, for the reconquest by the Stuart dynasty of England so it's extremely complicated but I think if I had to sum up the kind of philosophy there's a great irony in the English conquest of Ireland during this point because one of the things that's often talked about by radicals including Cromwell himself uh, parliamentarian radicals in England is what they call the Norman yoke They wish to escape the Norman yoke and go back to the ancient constitution, both highly mythologized concepts of a kind of freeborn English people. And they are repulsed by the idea of the Normanization of England, of this kind of imposed class upon the basic freedoms of the English people. And yet ironically, What you see in the conquest of Ireland is an anglicisation or an attempt to anglicise Ireland that mirrors the Norman conquest of England. Uh, So there's a great deal of irony there, but it was not an uncontentious act: the conquest and settlement of Ireland, Uh, and it was not perceived so at the time either, often by men of the new model army too. And I think there was even differences in the command. I think it's fair to say that Cromwell's attitude towards civilians in Ireland was far more tolerant than some of those commanders who remained in Ireland after he left after those nine months. So I think there's a lot of detail, a lot of nuance, a lot of complexity in this story that is actually now being confronted by a number of Historians, there, there is interesting revisionist stuff by both Irish and British historians who are working together on this, and I think it's going to be a very interesting subject yeah, that Cromwell and Ireland uh, and and the wider picture over the next few years. So there's there's lots more interesting stuff to come on that, but I think we'll have a much more complex, a greyer picture than the black and white manichean mythology that uh, persists uh, to this day.
1: Well, you've mentioned the um, religious zeal, I suppose, that was well that many members of the, uh, the New Model Army um, felt, mm. and and so when Cromwell returns from Ireland, the the religious aspects, I suspect can't be overstated, and this is whilst elements of the New Model Army are trying to thrash out what kind of government Britain then therefore has in the wake of the execution of Charles. What role did, did Cromwell play in that?
0: In, in terms of um, the religious aspect of, of Cromwell's beliefs, um, which obviously is, influences his politics, because religion and politics are impossible to separate at this point. But you have a divide within the parliamentary forces between Presbyterians who seek what is essentially a national church, but without bishops. Uh, so it's something akin to the model you have in Scotland. Uh, it's conformist. Uh, it, it believes that people should follow one national religion, just as Anglicans believe they should be. Uh, and it's it's quite an intolerant position, religious position. Cromwell is not on that side. Cromwell is on the side of those called the independents, who have a much more capacious view of religious settlement, which would allow for Presby- Presbyterianism, of course, but does not seek in, in a national church in that sense, but is tolerant towards congregationalists, which Cromwell was one, people like the Baptists, even uh, to a certain extent. Uh, The Quakers, who are quite a formidable force in the army, uh, but who are problematic because they don't believe in the Trinity. But essentially, the independents believe that all groups should be tolerated. All religious groups should be tolerated uh, as long as they believe in the Trinity, apart from, of course, Catholics. Um, And you see this really quite capacious view uh, in Cromwell's determination to resettle uh, Jews in Britain. Jews were expelled uh, from England uh, in 1290 uh, under the prerogative, royal prerogative of Edward I, and it was not legal for them to settle in England until uh, the protectorate uh, in the 1650s. And again, this was under the prerogative of the head of state, who was Cromwell. So you get this really quite capacious uh, religious settlement very unusual again when you think of the context of the 30 years war which has been a brutal sectarian conflict between protestant and catholic that's seen many atrocities even acts of genocide in uh, in europe particularly the german lands and so i think it's fair to say that throughout his rule right until his death in 1658 cromwell is concerned uh, to reach a settlement that is as capacious as possible in religious terms,
1: and he takes power really effectively through a coup, doesn't he? In, am in, um, I going to get this date right? 1653.
0: <laughs> um, yes, that's right. I mean, he. I mean, he's he's, well, he's dispatched. In April 1653. He dismisses the rump parliament that's that's a,
1: a coup's overstating cool. it then paul
0: well not necessarily i mean it, I, I i don't think it is i think i think a coup is a perfectly satisfactory uh term to, to do so but as always cromwell plays by slate of sleight of hand he's always slightly at a distance from the events that take place such as uh, dismissal of the long parliament but it's very, very difficult to believe that he's not a a primary agent in these matters. But what you get after uh, the dismissal of the wrong parliament um, in, in April 1653, you get what is easily the most bizarre experiment in parliamentary governance, which is something called the Nominated Assembly, uh, which is a parliament. One of the principal agents of this parliament is called Thomas Harrison, who is a member of a sect called the Fifth Monarchists. I won't go into deep what they believe, but it was called by its enemies, rather mockingly, as the Barebones Parliament. This was after a Puritan member of the parliament called uh, Praise God Barebones. It's called the Nominated Assembly officially because the members were supposed to be nominated by the gathered churches that had grown up uh, in this uh, quite capacious religious settlement. Um, It was based in terms of its structure on the Jewish Sanhedrin. Uh, It was very much concerned with Old Testament ideas of England being this new Israel that just as Israel had been the people of the Old Testament, then in God's new covenant, the English were to be the people of the new. And it was not quite as disastrous as it might seem this parliament. It passed some quite interesting legal reforms, which were seen as urgent at the time because the the legal processes had become uh, extremely convoluted. But nevertheless, it was very difficult to see survive beyond long and Cromwell became Frustrated by it, as he did by all his parliaments. And uh, it actually dissolved itself in December 1653. I mean, it was there for for months uh, rather than years. And so we see the fortunes of the Commonwealth, as it still was then, I suppose. And Cromwell's now emerged as the kind of primus inter pares among the political groups at that time. But the one person who is his rival. And some people see ultimately as its heir is a rather brilliant figure called John Lambert, who's had a similarly uh, illustrious civil war career, uh, also a, a cavalry officer. But while the nominated assembly has been going on, has penned what is the world's first written constitution and Britain's only written constitution so far. And that's called the Instrument of Government, which replaces the old trinity of King King, House of Lords and House of Commons with a new one, which is the protector, which is offered to Cromwell because they know he won't become king. That is a possibility at this stage so Cromwell just becomes you know, the king becomes uh, the uh, House of Cromwell. But he won't do that. So he, the role of protector is established for Cromwell and offered to him. He then serves under a council of state. So it's not a dictatorship because, for example, Uh, he can't declare war without the agreement of the council of state and then you also have uh, what's left of parliament at this point so you have a kind of unholy trinity I suppose you also have and and Cromwell accepts this and this is the beginning of what is called the protectorate uh, the Cromwellian protectorate with Cromwell as head of state and it has a quasi monarchical element to it that's why I'm always slightly I, I, I think the term English or British Republic is problematic. You do have an Act of Union that's passed between Scotland and England at that time, and you also have during the first uh, Protectorate Parliament, which is what this is. You have an attempt by the Royalists to create some kind of coup, or some kind of uh, rebellion. It's called Penrodick's Uprising, which is terrible failure um, you have various people mainly in the southwest of England including John uh, Penn Ruddock who tried to seize control of certain areas it's a miserable failure uh, they're no match for the new model army and that's mopped up pretty quickly and that's really the end of any significant royalist rebellion that's capable of overturning the protectorate as far as it Goes uh, militarily, the protectorate is secure. It's quite efficient at running it. Gets most of the old gentry, the old ruling families on side. Uh, an act of oblivion has been passed, so there's not um, uh, any great penalties that royalists have to pay. So that's that's quite successful. The big failure, and one of the focuses of my book happens not in terms of uh, domestic policy but in terms of foreign policy and I think it's I would argue it's the turning point in the regime's fortunes and to get some sort of background on this Cromwell I don't think anyone would suggest that Cromwell's an intellectual he's a sharp operator he's obviously charismatic uh, but he's not a great reader uh, it's a great speaker I think it's fair to say that's a very good letter writer uh, and there's a new volume of, of speeches, correspondence, and letters that's that's out now, edited by a team under John Morrill, That's that's the definitive three-volume, uh, exhaustive collection of, of Cromwell's speeches and correspondence. But he he does read, in addition to the Bible, which he has great familiarity with, he does read Walter Raleigh's History of the World, and Walter Raleigh is very much one of those, not only a great explorer a great adventurer but he's also a kind of ideologue of English providentialism this idea that England is the coming power that England should be an imperial nation that it needs to go out into the world and take what's what is its right and particularly in opposition to Spain Spain has got this, the black legend of Spain. It holds this unique place in the English Protestant Puritan imagination as the Antichrist, quite literally, in terms of its its rulers like Philip II, Charles V, uh, and so on. And Cromwell buys into this worldview entirely. And he has ambitions in the West Indies. And there's been an English presence in the West Indies for some time. Indeed, uh, there was an island called Providence Island, um, just off the coast of Nicaragua. It now belongs to Colombia, but it's it's located off the coast of Nicaragua, which was seen as a settlement right in the mouth of the Spanish, which could become a base for English privateers, pirates, essentially, to take on the Spanish in their own territory. They're they're the dominant Central and South American power at this time. It fails. It's eventually taken back by... uh, the Spanish just before the Civil War takes place, but it's um, it's a blueprint for what comes later. So the main base for the Brit- British at this time is Barbados, which has been settled. It's quite a royalist center, Barbados, and, and it needs some uh, discipline there, but there is a plan that strangely enough is proposed to Cromwell by a former Catholic priest, Called Thomas Gage, who is just about the only Englishman who's got writing to the apparatus of the Spanish imperial state in Central America. He speaks uh, some of the languages of the indigenous people there. He writes a quite brilliant uh, book um, recounting these travels, which is, which is still available in uh, which he writes about chocolate, for example, he writes about the, about the food that's there, and it's a fascinating work. But for some reason, one way or another, he returns back to England and converts to Protestantism. and he becomes quite an ally of the Protectorate, And he convinces Cromwell that the Spanish really are a decadent, hopeless people, that Their lands, their islands out in the uh, Americas are there for the taking. Uh, Of course, Britain already has a settlement in North America, but it's it's lacking uh, a suitable base uh, in the heart of the Indies. So Gage proposes the idea of an attack, major, major military undertaking, uh, which is really the first time that the British state has backed a military operation uh, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of cash. And it is to take the island of Hispaniola off the Spanish. And the island of Hispaniola is now the island that's shared between Haiti and uh, the Dominican Republic. It's a very large island near Cuba, which is the centre of the Spanish Central American holdings, and this force is put together. It's called the Western Design, this plan, and off it goes in 1655, and it is a complete disaster. The army is humiliated. The commanders are humiliated and sent into the tower. It is a disaster, and it is a personal disaster for Cromwell because, as I said before, he's a providentialist. If things are going right, God's behind you. And so there is this idea that we've done something wrong. What is it we've done wrong that God has brought this disaster upon us? We must be doing something wrong. And what Cromwell concludes is that the moral reformation of the country has not gone far enough. They have not reached the promised land so far. And so there needs to be some kind of crackdown. And this is is conceived the notorious plan of the rule of the major generals. And the rule of the major generals um, cantonizes England and Wales into various regions, each one of which is ruled by a major general and their uh, assistants, raising local militias. Um, and there's a crackdown on royalists. There's a crackdown on things like theatre, on gambling, on horse racing, all the kind of activities that um, the, the Puritans were notorious for cracking down on. And this takes place. It's not quite the dictatorship that sometimes it's been pointed out. I mean, they don't, on the whole, get the support of. The local families who are expert at ruling these areas. There's a lot of tension. Some commanders are far more belligerent than others. And so it's all a bit of a mishmash. But the major generals think they're doing a good job and they ask uh, Cromwell to hold elections as a kind of endorsement of their activities. And to no one's surprise, they don't get a resounding yes. Uh, For their activities. And I think there's a new group of people come through, often called the Kinglings, who are a more moderate group than the radicals in the army, who want a less capacious religious settlement. And many of these are Irish Protestants, and very notable among them is a man called Lord Broyle, and a new constitution, uh, a reformed version of the instrument of government, a more restrictive version of the instrument of government is proposed, which eventually becomes the humble petition and advice. And this is the one in which Cromwell is offered the crown. And this takes place against a whole group of crises. There are assassination attempts on Cromwell, which I think focuses minds on just how fragile the settlement is because it's so dependent upon this one man. There is the trial of the Quaker James Naylor for blasphemy, which reveals divisions between the Presbyterians and independence, which is is greater than ever. The army uh, tries to re-establish the militia bill which gave the major generals power. There's all kinds of things going on, all kinds of tensions within this. And the settlement uh, that's found is this humble petition and advice, as I said, a much more restrictive settlement, a much more restrictive constitution than the instrument of government. Cromwell is offered the crown, and he obviously considers that offer quite seriously. Because and so he would have been King Oliver? He would have been King Oliver and he turns it down. Uh, again, really for providential reasons. He will not build Jericho again. He says, God has taken away this crown. It's not his right to bring it back or anyone else's right to bring it back. It's gone. And so you're in this very precarious situation at the end of Cromwell's life in 1658, whereby no settlement has really been um, settled. So, what is the protector? Had you had. A king, had Cromwell accepted the crown, you could have had it on a hereditary basis so that it just goes straight to Richard, his eldest son, Henry, his, his, his next uh, youngest son, and so on. In the old settlement, the ancient constitution, I suppose one would call it, the crown in parliament, that's what you could have had. You could have an elected king, which is something like a Venetian doge. And Venice is very, very influential. Venetian ideas of Republican are very influential among people like John Lambert, for one, uh, but also with people like John Milton, who is a great propagandist for the regime, and also for people like James Harrington who proposes a constitution based upon the Venetian constitution for Cromwell, although he's rather late in the day, it's rather too late to suggest this. And then there's also the idea of having a hereditary protectorate or having an elective protectorate, but none of these questions are settled at the time of Cromwell's death on September the 3rd, 1658.
1: Crucial date for Cromwell, isn't a it? A
0: crucial date, September the 3rd. September the 3rd, also the date on which he won the miraculous Battle of Dunbar in 1650, the date in which he won the Battle of Worcester in 1651, uh, which was the final end of Charles II's campaign against the Commonwealth. And then he dies on September the 3rd, 1658. So, yes, September the 3rd is a very important date. Nothing is settled. John Thurlow, his great spy master and secretary of state says that Cromwell has appointed on his deathbed Richard as protector, and Richard assumes the mantle of protector. But ultimately, this is uns- he, he he does not have the kind of relationship with the army that his father had. What's realised in the end is that the army is the fundament on which the whole thing depends. And the whole thing rests on the power of the army. It's expensive. And in the end, to cut a very long story short, it is the army ultimately that decides, uh, under General George Monk, who is the leader of the Parliamentarian Army in Scotland, who marches down to a rather chaotic London where all the old demons that led to the first civil war, the radicals, the levellers, radicals in the army are coming out of control and he imposes an order. The long parliament is returned. That's the one that was dismissed by. Ultimately, though it's not inevitable at this point, ultimately uh, the restoration occurs in May 1660. And we have Charles II back with a relatively capacious and tolerant settlement, at least at first. And interestingly, the British Army, which in many ways Cromwell and his new model people were the architect of, we see the men who march down from Coldstream with the new model army, the Scottish Parliamentary Army, becomes what is now the Coldstream Guards, while Charles's own guard becomes the Grenadier Guards. And so they're the first and second regiments of foot and remain so to this day in the British Army. So, So the legacy is there. And so... We have the restoration, and ultimately, but ultimately, the absolute monarchy of which Cromwell and the parliamentary side were opposed to, does ultimately win the day. Um, It takes till the end of the 17th century to do this, um, what's known as the Glorious Revolution. But European absolutism, which is what Cromwell and his acolytes opposed in the form of Charles I, and then uh, people would later oppose um, in James II, um, does not take root ultimately on British soil.
1: But there's a great irony here, isn't there, that you've mentioned Oliver Cromwell's protectorate where he's Lord Protector. Isn't that a monarch in all but name?
0: Yes, I, th- I think it does become so. I think, particularly um, after the humble petition and advice, it is, it is, as I say a quasi monarchy. But then I think Cromwell obviously wasn't prepared to accept that mantle. But I was thinking about this during the coronation of Charles III. And I was thinking, because we often see Cromwell, or at least in the popular imagination, Cromwell is seen as a Republican. He's not. And there's nothing Republican about Cromwell. I think he's he's basically a supporter of the crown in Parliament. Um, and I looked on, uh, because you see the great statue of Cromwell outside Parliament, not so far away from Westminster Abbey, I think he'd have looked upon Charles III's coronation and being very content with that. What we had was what they were fighting for in the first place, which is the crown in Parliament. I mean, certainly there were people around Cromwell who were who were republicans. I've mentioned John Milton, for example, who who, who died a republican, um, and there were and there were many others. You know, so Henry Vane of Asselrig. You know, there, there were lots and lots of people who opposed Cromwell or at least were highly critical of Cromwell because of his. Quasi-monarchical trappings, uh, including, you know, the, in fact, coronation uh, when when he's installed as, as as protector with all the accoutrements um, of of a monarch. And so there's no doubt about that. He he has a court. He's living in Hampton Court Palace. He has the trappings of splendor, which which one would need anyway, according to the uh, etiquette, the kind of diplomatic etiquette of the time. Anyway, when one is um, One has the Venetian ambassador or one has the French ambassador coming there. You know, this is all perfectly normal. It would be very odd if they didn't. And there is that Venetian aspect to it as well. And also an influence, I think, on the American constitution as well, particularly Lambert's instrument of government. But I think that the settlement that we have now, probably controversial to say this, but I don't really know why. He's pretty much a Cromwellian settlement. Wonderful stuff. He won in in the long run.
1: So, Paul, this um, this has been great. Thank you. Uh, now I do know you 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 also have your own podcast, so I should let my listeners know about that. I'm sure they'd be interested. Those that don't already know about it, 1666 and all that.
0: Yes, which I uh, present with the historian Miranda Malins, Uh who's she's written... been on. She's a good friend of ours. No, absolutely, and she's written two very fine works of historical fiction. But is now working on a deeper history of the Cromwell family which she's just got a big book deal Uh, so that should be coming out and I think 2025 so looking forward to that but basically in 1666 and all that we look at the entire 17th century uh, not just in Britain but but um, elsewhere and we look at various themes there it might be the family in the 17th century it might be uh, we look at Charles I's pursuit of the Spanish in Fanta we look um, at all kinds of things there the idea of empire during the 17th century there's there's about there's about 14 or 15 uh, recordings out there we're just about to start dealing with the second series of these which should be coming out in September so um, there's quite a lot to listen to and we always have uh, or we often have uh, distinguished guests i, I mentioned john Morrill there we talk about the speeches and correspondence there, putting that together so there's an episode on that as well so um yeah it seems to have found an audience but uh, i think it's all you you said at the beginning you know the, there is a kind of vogue for the 17th century at the moment uh, which which has happened which of course i take entire credit for and um right, right. they uh, <laughs> the uh it's it is such a fascinating uh, period. It is it is so resonant still with so many of the issues that we deal with today that I argue, and of course I'm biased, but I would argue that it's the single most important century in British history. But, uh, but there you go.
1: Great, great stuff. Paul, this has been fantastic. Thanks very much providence lost the non-fiction book of the month links will of course be in in all the show notes for listeners if they want to find out more and of course to, to paul's great book but paul thank you very much
0: thank you my pleasure
1: thank you very much for listening please do share the pod and rate and review if you can plenty more great content coming up including homer's iliad tom holland and much much more so until then thank you and good night